You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode 69. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. We go back again today to the Hagakure, the Book of the Samurai. We're in the 10th chapter today. There was a certain retainer. But before we get back to the book, just a reminder that I have stickers for the podcast available for $2. You can track me down on Instagram at the Warrior Priest Gym and Podcast or the, just the Warrior Priest on Riley and have a look at what the stickers are and also contact me, just direct message me and I will give you the information and uh, we'll get going with that. Likewise, I had the pleasure this past Friday of being on Spotter Up and their podcast. So if you want to check that out, again, you can go to my Instagram page or Facebook pages. Otherwise, you can go over to Spotter Up, which is all over social media, and listen to the podcast there. It was a good time. We talked about faith and the warrior mindset. I thank John for his kindness in asking me to do the podcast in the first place. Shout out to Michael. And we connected over his book, actually, because I did a podcast on uh, We Fight Monsters. You can go back and check that out. I can't remember what episode was that. Well, I'm trying to track down the episode for you. Thanks. So again, shout out to Spotter Up and thanks for that. Go check out the Spotter Up website if you haven't already. A lot of great articles, great podcast, as I said, and a lot of direction there, a lot of good stuff. Excuse me. But like I said, today we're going to get back into episode 53. Title of the episode was Hated, featuring... Michael Cursina's book. Again, go go check the podcast out. It's up to 300 plays already. All right. Way to go, guys. And uh, otherwise, I'll include a link to this one uh, in the show notes so that you can go listen to it again if you haven't or want to re-listen. Otherwise, it's one of those days. I uh, had a really long day yesterday between training and getting tattooed. Shout out to my little brother, Josh, my spiritual brother with my love for being such a great artist at Aloha Monkey Tattoo. So if you're in the Twin Cities area, this is a, I, I'm not paid to, to say this one, but uh, go check out Aloha Monkey. And uh, I guarantee you, you will be extremely pleased with the work that's done there by everybody. But anyways, let's get into it. Like I said, I'm a little bit wrung out. I almost passed out in church this morning, actually, because I forgot to eat on top of everything else. Perfect cocktail of Donovan not taking care of himself. So there's a priest. This is on page uh, 149 of the online PDF. I will also include this in the show notes so that if you haven't already, you can just click and read the Hagakure online. There we go. So the priest, Ryoi, said, the samurai of old were mortified by the idea of dying in bed. They hoped only to die on the battlefield. A priest, too, will be unable to fulfill the way unless he is of this disposition. The man who shuts himself away and avoids the company of men is a coward. Only evil thoughts allow one to imagine that something good can be done by shutting oneself away. For even if one does some good thing by shutting himself away, he will be unable to keep the way open for future generations by promulgating the clan traditions. That's what I wanted to talk about in particular today. In chapter 10 here, the, there was a certain retainer. 
I think we are by nature, even if you're an extrovert, I am definitely extroverted by nature. And yet over time, I have come to appreciate solitude. And sometimes I'm mistaken for an introvert because of that. I interface with people all day long in my vocations, all of them. And so when I am off the clock, so to speak, I cherish quietness. I cherish alone time. I just like to be alone in the solitude with my thoughts. But I think the longer you're around and the more you experience of life and what people bring to the table, there is always the temptation to isolate. This is the whole purpose behind monasteries and convents, why there's desert mystics and desert monks, why men leave civilization and seek mountaintop temples where they can meditate all day, every day on the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. By the way, the answer is 42. I'll save you a trip to the monastery. If you don't know what that reference is to, well, I don't know. <laughs> Go read A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy right now. It's a classic. But there's always this temptation, right? Especially when politically times are hard. Socially, economically, times are hard. When personally, times are hard and we struggle to find our way through the day. That every step is a fight. Every step feels like we're walking through a minefield and one wrong step has mortal consequences to us. I'm sure we've all been in a relationship in some way that felt that way, whether at home, at work, whatever it might be. First love. You know, when I was in high school, I've talked about this before. We moved around a lot growing up. So I was never, I was never around anybody long enough or any schoolmates long enough to bond with them, so to speak. And we always lived in smaller towns. And at least in the upper Midwest, smaller town life is very clannish, very cliquish. And most of the kids then that I would encounter when I started school had been together since preschool even. And it became, the older I got and the further I got into the grades, the more difficult it was to integrate and adapt myself to the circumstances that I found myself in because those classes were so tight-knit. And as a one of the fruits of this, one of the consequences of this, is I never imagined, for example, that I would have a girlfriend or a long-term steady girlfriend, especially, of course, when you get to be 14, 15 years old, and that, especially for boys, that becomes essentially the trajectory for your entire life is find a girlfriend. You don't care. Again, hey, you like music. I like music. We should go out. So when I met my high school sweetheart, and it started off as so many high school romances do where I would just tease her when she walked by me in the hallway and I would call her names. I called her Wiggles because her butt wiggled <laughs> when she walked. And then after we started dating, she told me that she did that just for me. So I was, I was a prey animal <laughs> the whole time I thought I was the predator. That's how she trapped me. But we became high school sweethearts in the way that young, naive teenagers become sweethearts. And we wrote our future together. We planned out our future together, the names of our child, children, where we would go to school together, what our lives would look like. We plotted it all out because that's what 16, 17, 18-year-olds do when they haven't experienced that much of the world. They have 
so many ideals, so much hope, so many dreams that they believe are realistic. Some are, of course. Many are not, as we learn as we go through college and come out the other side of that. But we planned everything together, and yet our relationship was extremely volatile, extremely abusive, and not built on trust or forgiveness, not built on unconditional love. I was extremely controlling, extremely manipulative and abusive, for, speaking for myself. One, because I was a 17-year-old boy and I was stupid. And two, I had grown up abused and in a household of abuse. I didn't know how to interface with members of the opposite sex in a healthy and productive way, especially when I'm 17. And yet... We were on again, off again, on again, off again. And in a way, it seems in retrospect, of course, through adult eyes, we got addicted to this cycle of violence and reconciliation. Because anybody who has had a heated debate with someone that you care about, high school sweetheart, college sweetheart, your wife, your boyfriend, your husband, whoever, when you get into it and it's hot and heavy, it's you're going right to the edge. And then when you reconcile, it's so sweet. It's, it's such an exhalation of stress and tension that it's like a roller coaster. You have your high, high, and then you have your super low valleys. And it can become really easy then to fall into the, the trap <coughs> of getting addicted to that. That is the sound of iced coffee. The, the gentle tinkle of ice cubes against the glass. I'm trying not to clear my throat and cough so much. But coming out of church on Sunday mornings, I'm just, I'm dry. And I forgot to eat this morning. So like I said, I almost actually fainted in church. So I'm rehydrating with ice and cream and coffee. Seems like a healthy choice. But when we then broke up, after I finally went away to four-year college, and I came home and confronted her about that, and... As a consequence, I had a nervous breakdown. At 19, yeah, I was 19 years old, I had a nervous breakdown. Because I had built my entire future identity, the entire meaning of my life, I built it on a person. And I built it on a 17 and a half year old girl. And then expected her to carry the weight of my naivety, my willful ignorance, all the years of abuse that I had lived through the years of abuse that we had inflicted upon each other, that I had inflicted upon her. I expected her to carry all that because I'm young and I'm stupid. And so when she dropped it, I fell and I shattered and I didn't get out of bed for four days and I willed myself to die. And that's really when I turned the corner as far as my drinking and drug use, that was the turning point where I realized my heart was broken permanently. I had gone through a nervous breakdown. And for those of you who have never gone through a nervous breakdown, imagine not being able to feel emotions and not wanting to feel emotions on top of then wanting to die because you have lost all hope in the future. You're not sad. You're hopeless. And for those who have been hopeless, you know what I'm talking about. And for those of you who have never been hopeless, God bless you. And I hope that you never go through that because there is something worse than depression and sadness and it's hopelessness. The future just evaporates. I can't even explain it unless you've gone through it, but the future it literally evaporates. You can't see past the next thought. And in order to 
do the healthy thing, I anesthetized myself with immense heroic doses of drugs and alcohol for the next, oh, six years. And that's how I coped because that's how I saw people around me cope. And I withdrew. I withdrew and I became incredibly self-loathing. I hated all women because all women represented my ex-girlfriend. And I allowed that to happen because I couldn't get back at her. So I got back at her by being verbally dismissive and abusive and condescending and insulting in the way that I addressed and talked with girls and, and young women. And even when I would date after that, I would date always with the expectation that I was going to be hurt by my girlfriend. So I would hurt her before she could hurt me. And I did that in a serial manner. Add drugs and alcohol to that. And the types of young women you end up with themselves are not trustworthy because you're in the relationship together, usually because of drugs and alcohol and the party and everything that comes with that party. And so, of course, you're not the two most trustworthy people in the world. You're not not unconditional and you're loving. It's entirely conditioned upon drug and alcohol use or criminal activity or self-abuse or just abusing each other. And going through that myself then, I really wanted to withdraw from the world. I really did want to die altogether and kill myself, which is the ultimate withdrawal, of course, from the world. And after I failed in my suicide attempts at overdosing, and then going through my conversion and ending up in Mexico, I kind of withdrew from the world in my own way because I wanted to, I prayed that I would be shown what was happening to me as far as my conversion and my belief in God, what was happening to me personally in that I was finally sick and tired of being an alcoholic and an addict and a criminal. I finally started to feel again, compassion, empathy, remorse and regret for the things I had done. And all of that drove me to want to isolate, to separate myself from everybody so that I wasn't hurt. And at root, I think that's really what withdrawal is all about. And to, to shut yourself away from the company of, of men, to avoid the company of men, as he says, is, is a coward's way. But fear makes cowards of us all. And my fear of being hurt again, my fear of that self-fulfilling prophecy that occurs when you're bent on self-destruction because you got hurt and your heart was broken. And as a consequence, you chose a path of self-destruction rather than a path of reconstruction. You are constantly in motion writing the script for your own doom. It's like a catastrophe movie, but you're writing the script as you're living it. And then you write into the next page, the next chapter, more doom and gloom. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because we all know how this movie ends, crazy, in jail or dead. And so for me, if God had not torn the script up and said, no more of this, no more of this nonsense. This isn't true. This isn't real. You're creating, inventing lies for yourself, and then you're making them a reality through force of will. He pulled me out of that. Thankfully, he gave me someone who pulled me out of it because I think that's key too. It's a temptation of all of us when we're afraid. 
afraid of being hurt again, afraid of having our heart broken again, afraid of having to be intimate with someone and let someone else know the truth about us, the whole of us, warts and all. The fear of life and what life is going to do, the fear of struggle and hardship, the fear of suffering, the fear of death. It makes cowards of us. It makes us turn our back on our friends and family. It makes us abandon ourselves. It makes us run from God. And we want to shut ourselves away. Because if I'm in my closet, if I'm in my little room, then I'm in control. If I can reach out and touch the four walls, if I can sit on the floor, if I can jump up and touch the ceiling, if I can sit on this bed or in this chair, if I can write at this table and look into this mirror and wash my hands in this sink, I have control. But as I expand out, if I open the door, for example, I have to step out of the door. Or worse yet, maybe someone steps through the door into my space. Well, do I have control of that person? Do I have a say over what that person does in this space? Or is this person going to come into the space, invade my space, infect it with their presence and their will? What if I step outside? Now, what do I see? Is it the rest of the house? Is it the front porch? Is it the the street out front? Is it the whole world? Well, I can't, I can't touch that. I can't get my hands around that. I don't have control over that and everything that's in there. I'll retreat to my room. I have control from there. Control of who comes in and who come, goes out. I have control over what I do in this space. I have control over God because I'll fit God into this box too. And that way I can be God in God's place. I have the ultimate say. I am the ultimate judge. I have control. My will is absolute because there's no one here to check me. There's no one here to challenge me. This is why cancel culture thrives because at heart, we want to delete people who disagree with us. We want to suspend their accounts because they're wrong. They're evil. They're the enemy. So what better way to overcome their terrible ideas than just delete them, erase them from social existence rather than overcome their bad ideas with good ideas, overcome their arguments with better arguments, counter their example with a good example. But that requires, of course, discipline. It requires work. It means I have to listen to these people and interface with these people who I don't like and don't agree with. It means I might have to get to know my enemy. Or I could take the easier path, the path of the coward, and just run away to the woods or the mountains or the desert or the middle of the ocean and live alone on an island or on a mountaintop or in a cave or wherever it may be. And die in bed, safe, surrounded by my world, my universe, and the meaning of everything, well, at least the meaning of everything to me. However, within the samurai culture, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen because we don't live for ourselves. This is a Christian teaching. This is a Jewish teaching. This is a human teaching. Marcus Aurelius writes about this in his meditations. We are not here to selfishly serve ourselves. God did not create us to serve ourselves. God created us to serve us, to be our God. He created us to serve each other and to be his instruments of service in the world. That's why he put us as good stewards over creation. We mess that up, of course, because we're selfish. And we try to reverse engineer the whole reason that God put us on this earth. And yet, 
that's why we're having this conversation right now. That's why we're thinking about this is because whether you're a samurai in the East or a knight in the West, whether you're a warrior or a monk or a priest, the question of life is not how much can I get before I exit? The question of life is how many may I serve before the Lord takes me home? And I was just talking, again, shout out to my brother Josh, we were talking about this yesterday, is that people think, well, if I just have more time, if I had more downtime, if I had more leisure, if I had more freedom, I could do more with my life. I'd be more satisfied. I'd be more content. When, at least in my experience, and he agrees too, actually the more, the more time that is occupied serving others, the more satisfied I am when I go to bed at the end of the day. When I can get to the end of the day and just <sighs> exhale and realize, wow, I literally spent, the mo- from the moment I woke up until now, I've literally spent my entire day serving other people, serving my wife and kids, serving my congregation, serving my teammates at the gym, serving my brothers and sisters at the tattoo shop, wh- wherever it might be, dedicating your life disciplining yourself so that your focus is always others, serving others. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you put yourself in a position to essentially commit suicide by giving your whole life away to others and letting them just take and take and take parasitically until there's nothing left of you to give. That's masochistic. And those who want to do that to you are sadistic. But the purpose of life is to serve others, selfless service as the samurais called it. But it's in every major ethos in Western and Eastern civilization until very recently when we perverted it into self-service. But that closes the future. Self-service closes the future. Selfishness, self-centeredness, only caring about what I get out of this. That closes the future and closes down future generations. For example, going back to marriage and the relationships, we were talking about this yesterday. When you're younger and you see marriages fail, you see people get divorced and it's acrimonious. You see kids caught up in the wake of that acrimony. You see the years of self-inflicted harm that couples do to each other. And you watch that and you think to yourself, well, if that's what marriage is, I'm never getting married. I'm going to stay single forever. But hopefully, as you get older and you mature, you you receive experience through your conversations with others, you become more intelligent through your conversations with others, you come to recognize marriage, there's nothing wrong with marriage. God instituted marriage for, well, that I might have a companion, someone to support me and that I might support and that we might give our lives to each other, a true gift, but also that future generations might actually come to exist through us. That's what it means to be an instrument of God, whether you believe in God or not. God is a creator God. He's a living God. He creates life. So all human life comes from God. That's why all life in its own way is precious, is holy, because it's the holy God that made it. But we reverse engineer that and make life all about us. And then two people who are damaged, two people who are selfish, so selfish that they refuse to give ground, compromise, give up their desires so that the other person in the relationship can thrive. 
they refuse or they've only got 50% of themselves in the relationship or 60 or 75, but not all of themselves. They're holding out for something, maybe even holding out for themselves. And then you watch that marriage disintegrate and explode sometimes. And you think to yourself, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want that. For example, everybody in my side of the family, everybody in my family on my dad's side is divorced. I think so. Maybe my Aunt Randy didn't get divorced, but everybody else did. My grandmas were both divorced. <laughs> Most of the people that I've known growing up on one side of my family were divorced. So I didn't grow up with a real positive uh, image of marriage in my mind's eye. And yet I was in love with the idea of being in love, in love with the idea of being married, in love with the idea of children and being a parent. I was in love with the idea of all that because I was, again, young and naive and stupid. And then I got married and discovered it's hard work to be married. It's really hard work. It's beautiful work, but it's hardship because you're asked to suffer for somebody else. You're asked to sacrifice your wants and cravings and desires and even needs sometimes for the other person. And then God gives you one or two or five (laughs) or more children. And all of a sudden, you're not expected to give yourself away to just one, but more than one. And maybe you're called to interface every day with people that need you and rely on you to show up for them. And that's your job, whatever vocation that might be. So now you go from one to many to a multitude. And suddenly people are listening to you and they're looking to you for advice and counsel. They're looking to you to serve as an example of manhood or of faith. They expect you to show up and do your job. They count on you to do your job and be consistent in how you do your job. But there's days when you don't want to do that, when you are exhausted, when you are hanging by your fingernails over the edge and you got nothing left. I can't even count anymore the number of days in the last 20 plus years that I've said to myself or even said to my wife, I can't be the strong one in this relationship today. I just can't do it. I cannot carry the weight of this family on my shoulders today. I can't do it. I cannot. And then I did it. Because if I put, if I put that, that load down, yeah, I get out from underneath it for a day, but then everything goes to hell. The house goes to hell. My wife can't get her work done because I'm not there to help. And the kids are wild animals in my house. <laughs> they have my personality, so they're savages. The kids don't get what they're supposed to do done. People that need me to show up for them, I'm not there. So usually when I need a day or an hour (laughs) or a moment, I have to coordinate with other people. I have to say, hey, what's going on tomorrow from 10 to 12? But even then, right, you're asking others for a moment to just rest, to just exhale, uh, enjoy the isolation, enjoy that moment alone with your thoughts. But you're dependent on other people because you've made yourself open to those other people. So of course, there's always the temptation to want to pull back because that root, it's that fear of losing yourself completely for the sake of others and not being rewarded for it, not being acknowledged or affirmed, not, not even getting a thank you. And like I said with my high school sweetheart, just the fear of having your heart broken again, not even the first time, just again, just let's just forego the whole thing and just 
shut ourselves away. Let's just do that. And yet the samurai were mortified by the idea of dying in bed. They hope to die on the battlefield. If I die preaching in the pulpit, amen. <laughs> That's fantastic. I couldn't ask for a better death. If I die fighting, I couldn't ask for a better death. That's what I prepared for, after all. If I die teaching, awesome. I'll have died a good death. I'll die doing what I love. If I die with my children and my wife, I'll die a good death, surrounded by all of these gifts. By God's grace, the last 20 years, I have done everything that I can, everything within my ability, to not just essentially schedule a life that at any moment, if it's taken from me, I can say, that's good. I had a good life. But by God's grace, I'm there right now today. And the way that I got here is by wanting to run away and failing so many times, I've lost count. My whole life is just a series of failures, constant failure. Like I said, I failed myself this morning by forgetting to eat and it's daylight savings time. So I woke up an hour early because my body was like, yep, let's go. It's 420 rock and roll. And then yesterday being so exhausting and just taking so much out of me, I didn't do what I needed to do to show up for people today. And that's to my shame, at least from my perspective. Because when I show up for people, I expect to fully show up and be there fully for them. Not part of me, but all of me. But my life is marked by failures, constant failure, punctuated by moments of success. But if you don't get comfortable failing, I don't know if you can learn how to get to that place in life where you can say, if today's the last day, I'm good. I had a good life. But in order to get there, at some point, we have to recognize, wait a minute, I'm being a coward. I'm letting fear dictate my trajectory. I need to stop, back, back up, backtrack, take the other fork in the road, and go the other way. That's bravery. That's courage. That's what heroes do, to quote a movie. Again, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's recognizing your fears and then leashing them and using them as fuel to drive you further down the road that demands courage from you. I'm afraid every day, afraid of failure, afraid of success, afraid of winning, afraid of losing, afraid of not living up to people's expectations of me, afraid of not meeting my own expectations of myself, afraid of my kids dying, afraid of my wife dying, afraid of being so catastrophically injured I can't train anymore, fear of losing my church, my congregation, Fear of my faith not being true. Fear about the future of this country. Fear about everything. But thankfully, God is good. And he strengthened me so that I recognize the fear as my enemy. 
I refuse to live in fear. And so I wrestle with fear. And as much as I can, I beat the living shit out of it. So that today I can say, whoever the man was that went to bed last night, he's not here anymore. He's dead. I killed him. And today I'm a new man. God willing, tomorrow I'll be a new man again. That's, in my church's tradition, that's our theology of baptism. That baptism makes you a new man and that every day you're drowned and put to death so that a new man might arise and walk in his place. But just in life in general, we know this. I'm not the person I was yesterday. Thank God. Tomorrow, as satisfied as I am, as satisfied as I am right now in this moment talking to you, drinking my iced coffee, reflecting on this text, and sharing my thoughts and feelings with you, as good as this feels right now, as satisfying as I am right now, satisfying as I am, as satisfied as I am right now, I trust that tomorrow when I wake up, I'll reflect on this podcast and be hypercritical of how I articulated my thoughts, what I talked about, how I expressed myself, everything. Even the tinkling in the ice, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about this stuff all night long. And yet, this podcast and what I'm saying and how I'm saying it, what I'm thinking, the iced coffee, the text, everything is happening exactly as it has to happen. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. So tomorrow I can wake up and say, everything that happened yesterday happened the way that it should happened, should have happened. And I know that because it happened. And I don't deal in what ifs then. I don't deal in what could have, would have, or should have happened. Because whatever was supposed to have happened, happened yesterday. Whatever happens today, is supposed to happen today. Yesterday was a great day. You know, when I got home last night and I wasn't feeling very good because I was exhausted and wrung out, I knew what I needed to do to take care of myself so that I could show up and do my job this morning. And I did. And then I got up and betrayed myself. My body betrayed me first, and then I forgot to eat because I got so wrapped up in getting ready for church and serving my congregation that I forgot to take care of myself and feed myself. And I can't serve the people in my congregation if I pass out and faint <laughs> at the altar. That's kind of the point. To serve others, you first have to make sure that you are in condition to serve them. How can you be meek if you're not capable of great violence? How can you be kind if you're not capable of great cruelty? How can you be successful if you haven't, in, if you haven't gone through failures, plural failures? It's the dichotomy of life, that it's not either or, but it's both simultaneously, and we live in that tension whether we want to or not. That's, again, why we try to escape from the company of others and serving others. Because being around other people creates that dichotomy. It creates tension. Because other people are out of my control. I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know how well they're articulating their thoughts. I can't read their heart. I don't know their intent. I can only take them at their word. And if they're not very good at speaking or at thinking out loud, I don't know what they're going to do. I can't trust their motives. And there's a whole bunch of them, billions of them. Better that I just withdraw to my sanctum, sanctorum, where I have control over my little world, my little kingdom. To go out the door, to engage and interface with your culture, that takes courage, whether you believe it or not. And in a lot of places in the world, it's pretty obvious that it takes courage to go out the front door in the morning. If you even have a front door. 
It takes courage to interface with others, to engage others. It's going to be heartbreaking because people are selfish and you're going to break other people's hearts, whether you're aware of it or not, because you're selfish and I'm selfish. And yet the struggle of life, like I said, the struggle of life, at least for us, is to put that down, that selfishness, that selfish desire to satisfy our every craving, to allow our impulses to you know, hold us in bondage. The purpose of life is selfless service. Serve the ones that we love, that God has seen fit in his grace to give us so that we might enjoy love. And maybe that's not a spouse, maybe that's not a partner, but maybe that's a peer. In my society today, love is almost monolithic at this point by definition. It's sexual, it's physical. All expressions of love in popular media are physical expressions of love. Intimacy is predominantly physical intimacy. And yet that is the least intimate of the different kinds of intimacy that one can share with another human being. Love is love. Unfortunately, we're not Greek. We're not Latin. We're not Hebrew. We're not French, Italian, or Spanish. We can't speak with declensions and inflected verbs and have multiple definitions and multiple words to use for something like love. Greek has multiple words to describe love depending on the context. So we tend to describe love monolithically and we tend to describe it in physical terms. This is why pornography is so popular. It's a perversion of physical intimacy. It's a perversion of love. But it is completely devoid of emotion and intellect. It's mechanical. It's just two bodies slapping together. The deepest level of intimacy is emotional. Before that, intellectual. And the least amongst them, physical. So like I tell people, young people in particular, talk with the person first. On an intellectual level, are you on the same footing? Not just do you like music or do you like this kind of music, this genre of music? Have you read this author? No. Intellectually, are you on the same level? In matters of faith, in matters of philosophy. Imagine if on the first date you had a discussion about your moral philosophies or your ethical stances on particular issues. Instead of asking, do you like this anime? What about discussing, discussing the subtext of the anime? The character's motivations and find out this person is definitely into this like I am and they're thinking about it at the same level that I am. Oh, you like the same sport I do. You like jujitsu? I like jujitsu. Did we just become best friends? More than likely, actually, you did. Shout out to my brother, Blake. But if you don't engage one another on an intellectual level first, and then you decide to open yourself up emotionally to a person, and you're not intellectually on the same page, or worse yet, you started with the physical intimacy and then decided to open yourself up emotionally to them, what do you really know about that person? Not much, actually. Not much at all. But to get to know someone on an intellectual level before you decide, before you choose to open emotionally to them and show them the deepest truths of yourself, the raw, primordial, primal, emotional stuff that you hold back and hide from the rest of the world because we're all cowards. 
Let's be honest. Just go around showing everybody our cards because we know they're going to cheat. To engage with someone on an intellectual level. To read the Hagakure together, for example, and discuss it or read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius or the Enchiridion of Epictetus. To read Cyrus the Great, for example, by Xenophon and, and discuss it before you decide whether or not to open to up to each other emotionally. In my opinion, that's the way to go. Then you open up to each other emotionally. Then you show each other the truth about what's inside of you, without filters. And then finally, the physical. Because to make love, one must make love by loving another physically with all of his or her emotional and intellectual being, heart, soul, and mind. That's true intimacy. That's a true relationship. So if you're not willing to do that, then do you really want to be in the relationship or are you just satisfying your impulses? It's mechanical. You're no better than an animal acting on instinct. The only way to fulfill the way, capital W, way, is to recognize that it's on the battlefield. It's in conflict with yourself and with others that one is actually fulfilled that actually one actually comes to the knowledge of this is how God works in the world. These are his instruments for good. These are his instruments of salvation. This is how we interface with the world. We're put here to serve each other. And God put us here to serve us so that we can serve each other. And if we shut our way, ourselves away from all of that, we're literally closing ourselves off to reality, to life. And then only evil follows from it. Because if all of us shut ourselves away, if all of us said marriage is gross, it's terrible, no one should get married, and we all just agreed, you're right, we should all stop being married, we should all stop getting married, we should stop being in relationships altogether and just go each our, go our own way, well, we would die in one generation. That's literally a contradiction of life itself, whether you believe in God or not. There's no good that can be done for others or for ourselves by shutting ourselves away and cutting ourselves off from each other. However, that then means that we have to be much more deliberate about who we allow into our lives and how far we allow them into our lives. Again, are we on the same level intellectually? Are we on the same level emotionally? If I'm completely open and the other person isn't, well then, this is not, this game is rigged. I have presented myself, put my junk on the table for you to pick through, but you put a candy wrapper up there. What am I supposed to think about that? I got emotionally naked in front of you and you refuse to even take off your pants. Now what? Are we going to continue this way? Lopsided? Unequally yoked, as my professor used to say. That's what he used to say about my wife and I. He saw her and he goes, man, you two are unequally yoked. <laughs> he goes, you better be good because you definitely don't deserve a woman that beautiful. So I thought, you know, yeah, we'll just pray for lots of kids. That way, if you want my wife, it's a package deal. You got to take all the savages with her. Then we can negotiate. I kid. But the future, the future is only open to us if in the present we recognize what we have, what we've been given, and what we're intended to do with it. Not covet it, 
not allow our impulses, especially fear, to determine the course of our life. Instead, it's to serve others. And by serving others, we are serving ourselves because that's why they're there is to serve us. So maybe rather than lock ourselves away, we just recognize that we've not been that particular about who we let into our lives. And that when we let people that don't deserve a piece of us into our lives and they take a pound of flesh from us, they break our hearts. We're culpable too. We let them in. We opened ourselves up to them. We built our future on a person with feet of clay. It's not entirely their fault. If we were more deliberate though, if we learned from past failures so that we recognize the threat when it walks in the room, we'll be better off in the future. Then we can say in a couple years or a couple decades in my case, finally, by the grace of God, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. If today is the last day, good. I'm good. I know who I am. I know where I came from. I know how I got here. I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. That opens the future. That's what opens the future. Not worrying about it. Not shutting yourself away, hoping to protect yourself or control the future. But rather being open and deliberate and disciplined. Because discipline equals freedom. Our freedom is there if we're disciplined about it. We don't have to run away. We don't have to let fear make us cowards. We can recognize it. We can recognize how it comes at us. We can take it captive. We can put it in this cage. We can use it as fuel so that we're better people for others and therefore ultimately will be enriched by those experiences. I couldn't be the husband I am today if I, had, if I had not have had my heart broken by my high school sweetheart. It's a fact. I couldn't be the husband that I am today if I hadn't failed so many times with so many young women in my life when I was young. And so as painful as it was to go through that, and as painful as it was, I'm sure, for those who had to suffer me when I was 17 or 19 or 23. Again, I apologize to every girl I dated between the ages of 15 and meeting my wife. It was mostly my fault because I was not a good young man. I was not a good person. I wasn't a man. I just wasn't. I wasn't a protector. I wasn't a defender. I definitely didn't care about those who needed me. It took me many, many many years of Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and working the big book and taking responsibility for my choices over the years and just relentless, rigorous honesty with myself, always taking moral inventories, that I could finally say I'm not ashamed to look my wife in the eye and tell her I love her. I'm not ashamed to look myself in the eyes in the mirror and admit 2020 has been the best year of my life just for me personally, even for us as a family, I think it's been the best year of our lives in the midst of crisis and chaos. I can say that. And it's true. But only so far, insofar as 
this year I have been turned even further away from my own selfish desires and impulses in order to be there for other people. And rather than seek rewards, it is its own reward, at least in my opinion. That's the way. That's the way. Everybody's looking for something. Everybody's looking for self-satisfaction. Everybody's looking for a trophy. But the fact of the matter is, they're right there in front of you the whole time. You don't need a cup. You don't need a belt. You don't need a medal. You need people. You need other men and women, young, old. doesn't matter. We need each other. Without each other, the future is closed. And with each other, the future is open. That's what God made us for. Plus, how are we supposed to stand triumphant on the field of battle if we don't stand together, united? So be kinder. Be more forgiving. Love unconditionally. But recognize that there are people that have come to take a piece of you who don't deserve it. Serve them, but don't let them come in the front door. Go serve them. Recognize who they are. And don't let them in. Emotionally physically, intellectually. It's possible. You just got to work at it. Everybody's needy. Everybody needs help, whether they recognize it or acknowledge it or not. Everybody does. We all need help from each other because we all need love. We all need kindness. We all need to be forgiven. We need that guilt taken off our shoulders. We need to be shown that we'd have nothing to be ashamed of. God still loves us. Jesus is still Jesus. We're still here for each other, even if it's just words spoken over a radio frequency. I'm here for you, and I know you're out there for me too. So I'll wrap it up there before I get too sappy and sentimental. But as always, I truly appreciate the fact that you're listening, and I appreciate all the feedback. It's, again, always humbling it's humbling to have people buy stuff that you make. It's humbling to let, have people say, hey, I love your podcast. That's weird. It's really weird. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're listening? But that's what the point of life is, to be there for each other. And this is one way that I've figured out to share my thoughts with you, to share myself emotionally with the world, and to say, if you're like me, you're not alone. You're not alone. So you don't have to withdraw. You don't have to hide yourself away. You don't have to be a coward. You just have to be more thoughtful, more tactful, more disciplined about the types of people you hang out with. Motivated, encouraging, kind, good people. I love you. Peace. <laughs>